Welcome to Fireside with Voxcake, podcast for professional public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of Voxgate.com, which is an online community and service for speakers and event professionals. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. My guest on today's episode is Jim Flash Gordon, the founder of Boxworks co-working space in Waterford, Ireland, where VoxGig headquarters just happens to be located. Flash is also the proprietor of Revolution Gastro Bar, located in the heart of Waterford City, among many other business interests. He's an accidental entrepreneur. Was this the plan all along? We'll find out soon enough. I'm going to jump straight in, Flash, and ask you, is there some big plan? No big plan. Totally accidental. Uh, It all started, I suppose, I've been a chef since I was in around 16. Went to college here in Waterford. Started working in Waterford, New York, Hotel, Manor's Restaurant, Lockman's Restaurant. Lockman's was a huge 200-seater self-service restaurant doing 1,800 customers a day. It was a pure machine. And that's, I suppose, where I learned my trade. And then I had a couple of, I suppose, bad days after about nine or ten years. I think I was getting old and stale in the role and um, went across to this pub called Reddy's in High Street. Sat up at the bar stool at three or four in the afternoon, ordered a double vodka and Red Bull. And the owner was looking at me going, you OK? And I was going, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. He said, oh, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I said, ah, just sick of the job and all that. And he said, uh, come over and buy this place off me. And I said, I'm a chef. I've no money. I haven't had to do about running a bar. And he said, but you're the ideal guy to run a bar. He said, you, you, you interact with the public. You tell me what I should be playing music all the time. You tell me what I should be doing. So do it yourself. Put your money where your mouth is. And I said, no money, I have no money. And a couple of weeks later, another bad day, I went over, had another drink. And he said, come to the office, we'll have a chat. And within four weeks, I think he leased me the bar. Um, we pulled a lot of food customers that I would have known a lot of bar customers that I would have known and we were busy from the day we opened. We opened, I think, with 60 or 70 in the bar on the first night. And on the first night opening a bar was the first time I ever pulled a pint. And, you know, fast forward, what, 15 years? And now we've two bars. We've Revolution Whiskey Bar in the city centre and we've Oscar's Gastro Bar on the outskirts of town. And... uh, We've learned so much. We're now, I suppose, I won't say the foremost authority, but we're, we know everything there, about everything about whiskey and craft beer. And that's where we've set our niche now. And uh, we stock 227 whiskeys, 103 craft beers, gins, tequilas, rums, anything in that genre. And we're specialists in Irish whiskey. And um, I suppose that was, that's the bar end of things. Then um, in the middle of the recession or towards the end of the recession, um, we had a meeting with City Council. We had a meeting with Waterford Business Group and I put it out there to co-working spaces or how to generate new footfall in the city centre. You know, retail is going online. It's losing footfall all the way. 
and this would be a new idea. So I pitched it to a couple of people and they were going, there's no money in the economy and, you know, this is the way it is. So I, I spied this building as I'm walking down every single morning to work. And uh, this building is, is Boxworks on Patrick Street. And it was built in 2007, 2008 as a monstrosity of a building. And it was going to be retail and hairdresser and restaurant and, you know, everything fits everything in there. And um, the recession happened and went into NAMA and uh, I kept hassling a, a local auctioneer going, you know, when's it coming to market? When's it coming to market? I'd, li- I'd like to live there. And, uh, and you do live here as well. And I do That's, live here as well. We'll, yeah. get to, we'll get to that in a minute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump back Go on. a tiny bit. Um, so you bought a pub and you couldn't pull pints. Yeah. <laughs> you learn how to pull a pint in but you were a 119 chef. seconds. You were a um, chef. The guy that owned the place said, you're a chef. He said, it's the same as running a kitchen except for your stock doesn't go off. Which was a great analogy. We, like, we were able to financially control kitchens and do margins control staff, all that kind of thing. So it was just extending that to the bar trade with longer and longer hours. I think that's, um, I think that, I think this is a, this is a question I want to put to you because there's business and doing VAT returns and all that type of stuff. Yes. But you started off in a trade. Yeah. Um, and I, I've, I'm building a business as well, but I started yeah. off in a trade as well. Programming. Ooh. It's a little bit different. Yes. <laughs> slightly less slightly. Heat in the kitchen. <laughs> uh, but how important is a trade? Do you need a trade? Um, no, not really. I've Since the age of nine or ten, I said, I want to be a chef, I want to be a chef. I went through school. My mum threw me into school when I was three um, because she had another couple of kids. And uh, the teachers tried to hold me back. And she said, well, no, all his friends are in this class. I finished my leaving cert when I was 15. And I started college the day before my 16th birthday. And I've always wanted to be a chef. And that was, I still do. I still work in the kitchen on Oscars. And revolution, you know, two, three days a week. But now my time is mixed up between that and, as you said, doing accounts, fat returns, HR, GDPR, uh, and everything that comes with it. And you just need to, to multi-skill on everything. Would you say, um, because I know you've said to me previously, you, you do the carvery on Sundays. Yeah. Um, but that's that's terrible, isn't it? Because you're not meant to work in your business you're meant well, to work on your business no not at that's all the, that's the traditional advice for entrepreneurs isn't listen, it? listen there's been so many publicans come and go in this city who've sort of stood back and went sure my staff will do that you have yeah. to be first and foremost you have to be the face of your company you know through good and through bad and if you're first and foremost with your customers your customers respect that to you you know if you if i was to sit at the bar at sunday lunch and keep shouting at the staff to work harder and all that. Um, you know, I'd get no respect whatsoever from either my staff or my customers. And it's the customer is the ultimate goal to keep them happy, to keep them fed, to keep them in drink, you know, and, and whatever. No matter what you do in this life, first of all, you need to be happy with what you do. And second of all, you need to keep the customer happy. That sounds like it's... It's kind of in your bones. Is is it? Yeah. Did you learn it or, or did it just? No, I, just I've always been like that. Yeah. Like even in places I've worked, um, people are going, why are you doing so many hours? Why are you so pushed? Do you have a, a share in this? And I'm going, no, I just like what I do. And even even certain members of my staff, uh, they'll come in in bad humor someday or, you know, they, they'll just have a bad day. And I said, look at 
is there something wrong? They said, oh, I just hate coming into work. And I said, look, at you hate coming into work, don't come into work. Like in this life, do something you love and it won't feel like work. And that's always been my ethos. You know, get, get out of bed in good humour in the morning, look forward to going to work and the day flies. Were you born with cop on? Uh, is that the answer? <laughs> I think I was born in a working class family where my, my dad used to go out to work eight to five. He'd come home at five. My mum would go out to work five until nine or ten at night, uh, five days a week. And, you know, times were tough. Yeah. So uh, I learned the tough end of things. And then my first ever job was the Granary Restaurant in Wexford. God, in the late 80s. And my first head chef on my first day sat me up on a freezer in in the store and said, listen, if you get into this kitchen thing, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. It's going to be long hours. There's going to be tempers flaring. But he said, once this gets into your bones, you'll never walk away from it. And I honestly believe that once you get into hospitality, you'll never walk away from it. It's a it's it's a hard business to be in. It's a fun business to be in. Let's go back to Reddy's pub. Okay. <laughs> about hard business. <laughs> okay. um, because this was the this was kind of the key moment. Yeah. Um, and could things have gone differently that day? Oh, the day that the day that you decided to buy that pub, things could have went horribly wrong because the bar wasn't doing particularly well. Um, it was a bit of a an old school swirly carpets, captain's chairs, that kind of thing, fireplace in the window, and we turned it into young, hip, trendy TVs, loud music, and I suppose it was the kind of place I like to socialise. So therefore, everyone said at the time that if I bought a bar, I'd become an alcoholic. And instead, I became a workaholic and practically hadn't got time to drink anymore. So it was it was weird the way it it wound out. But I think the the toughest thing for any new business is I knew how to cook. Then I knew how to serve points. But then you have to do accounts. You have to do HR. You have to deal with the bank. You have to deal with, you know, revenue. Um all these kind of things hit you and you're going, how am I going to learn all this? And it's a steep learning curve for, for any new business. Yeah, I, that's, I found that as well. You have, you have a passion or a mission. You, you had a vision for that pub. Yeah. You, you, were, you, weren't, you weren't talked into it really, were you? <laughs> no, I wanted to do it, but I, I, I remember when I was in college and we were asked the question, uh, who will be a head chef within three or four years? And I go, oh, I don't want to be, I just want to work in a kitchen. And within three years, I was um, sous chef in the Audrey Hotel. And within five years, I was a head chef. And then within 10, 12 years, I had my own business. I always swore I'd never borrow from the bank. And then I borrowed for a small house. My first mortgage was 17 and a half grand. Uh, my first loan from the bank for a business was 1.78 million. And it was scary. Wow. Ooh. That is scary. Yeah. But it becomes business, isn't it? Because it's not it's not the same thing. I, Borrowing, it, you can see a pathway to, to profit. You can see how to put it to use. I don't think of the profit end of it. Yeah. If, if, if the money comes in, the money goes out and the bills are paid, I'm a happy man. And people say to me, oh, you're only happy because of the money. It's because of the buzz of the business and what's going on and the crack you're having with customers and with fellow staff members. And, and the people, you, because we work on sociable hours, I'll always tell any, any staff that whinge they don't get weekends off. And I'm going, we take Tuesday and Wednesday off. We can go to any restaurant in town and just walk in and get a table. You can't do that on a Saturday night. We could walk into a cinema on a Tuesday evening and have the cinema to ourselves. 
and anything you want to do socially you can do midweek a lot easier than do weekends and then when you go away you go to Dublin Cork midweek it's an awful lot cheaper than going away for a weekend hidden benefits absolutely <laughs> I'm not sure I give up the weekends though myself to be honest <laughs> with you um, so you you're you're sitting there and people are asking who's going to be the head chef who's going to be head chef in three years and you're saying to yourself it's not going to be you. All you want to do is cook. Yeah. But then it turns out you've got this huge appetite for risk. It wasn't even risk. It just things fell into place and I became more confident. Uh, like, believe it or not, when I started in this business, I was so shy and so quiet. No. I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even walk to the restaurant if there was customers there. I'd wait for them to leave before I'd walk to the restaurant to go to the changing room. I was that shy. They're your customers. You uh, wouldn't speak. Uh, customers in... The first downtown place I worked, which was Manners in George's Court. And the boss man um, created scenarios to drag me out and to make me talk to people. And did he see your potential, do you think? I think he did. Yeah. He knew I could cook. He knew I could manage a kitchen. And then he always said that, that chefs were personalities. Before there was celebrity chefs, he just went, you know, people want to know who's cooking their food. Go out and talk to them. And uh, such and such a woman is that for complimenting your chicken dish. Go out and talk to her. And I'm going, oh, I'm too busy. Make time. Yeah. So your first boss was, he was important then. Yeah. He was very yeah. flamboyant, very upfront, very sort of, he was the face of his business. And I was the guy in the kitchen. And he was trying to bring me out to be part of the personality of the place. And he did that with most of his staff. He must have seen something. My uh, my first boss did that was with me as well. Mm. Uh, he was a huge influence. Yeah, uh, I'd say I'd say he saw some. He saw it there. He saw the spark. <laughs> and you were shy, which is funny because now um, I mean my business is all about conferences and events yes. and public speaking. Uh, and you're a great public speaker now. I've been to events where you've jumped in. You're the MC and you yeah. keep control of the crowd. Um, but how did you get from A to B? How did you get from wouldn't even go out the front door to? To, to speaking in front of I lots of people. Manners morphed into Lockman's in George's Court. A lot of people will remember that place. And it was a, a 200-seater self-service restaurant. And I did the carvery from serving breakfast from 11 in the morning till 12, lunch from 12 to 3, Saturday afternoon, standing behind the dessert counter, serving 1,800 desserts on a Saturday afternoon. And you just got to know people. People got to know you. People had asked your advice on what they should have. And your personality just grows and grows and your confidence grows and grows. And then people know you. Um, is that important, you. having people in the audience? Yeah, you know totally. Your supporters. Not even that you know, but um, I remember James here. Um, he's a young architect that, that works in Boxworks yeah. and he's still in college. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, he said to me, I need to ask you something. I, I, I have to get up in front of... Um, about 30 people in my class and my teachers and lecturers next week and make a presentation. You know, what do I think about? And I said, first of all, don't rehearse a speech. You know, don't just blag it out there. You know, just write up a couple of points and then walk up and down your bedroom or in front of your mirror and just say it like you're saying it to your mother or your best friend or whatever. And when you get up in front of a crowd, just forget about the crowd just focus on one or two people you know and talk to them like they're your best friend. And it's the same with TV, it's the same with radio, like like this kind of thing. We're sitting around the table having a chat. 
we're not broadcasting to millions of people on whatever. <laughs> never know where this is going to end. <laughs> Absolutely, but but like it's the same. You know, we did a a, a show together on WLR a couple of weeks ago. We did, and we sat opposite one another chatting. It wasn't sort of going most of Waterford are listening. It's just having a chat. So getting in front of fifty people or a thousand people, you know, it's just focus on one or two people and talk to those people. There's always going to be somebody on your side. Um, I do that as well. You find mm. you find someone you know is, is a is a friend, yeah. is a supporter. You talk to them, look them in the eye. But but a couple of things you have to have passion about what you're talking about, and you have to know the product. Like it's no use me getting up and talking about nuclear microbiology. You know, you're probably good. Now. <laughs> I'm probably blagging, but That's, I, 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 we'll we'll get you to do that. Now. Yeah, but but you'll get found out. Yeah, you know. But if you get up in front of a crowd to talk about a subject. You got to know that subject inside and out, and no matter what question is asked of you, you got to know the answer. And I think that's one of the keys to public speaking. Yeah, it's about honesty, isn't it? Because oh yeah. If you're if you're if you're if you're honest with yourself, if you're if you're authentic, mm. it kind of comes. It's not it's not something that um, locks up inside your head. I think that's where a lot of people's experiences of public speaking goes a bit wrong because they're asked to present to their classes and things like that about stuff they don't know about. Yeah, they've only done a couple of days research or something. Uh, but if I ask you to talk about business or Boxworks, the co-working space mm. we're in right now, yeah. um, I can see your, your eyes light up. Like, oh, yeah. It comes out then. You see, it's kind of it's kind of mission driven, isn't it? I love it. But it's not even mission driven. It, it's sort of, you know, it's a space you like coming into. It's a buzz you have with people. It's about being, being comfortable with people you're around. And it, it's about... Being positive. Was there a motivating force <laughs> to find the pub? I, I hear there was. Was there? Was there? Was there a reason that you sat there that day? I'm just going uh, for all the times I've said I don't want to be my own boss. Yeah. I'm just going. I think I hate working for somebody else, and I think it was the first time I've just went. I can do this, and we set up a. I remortgaged my house for thirty grand. And that was the deposit to buy the interior and bits and pieces. And a nice gentleman who owned the pub knew I couldn't afford the stock. So he said, I'll leave the stock there and give me the money when you have it. That's fantastic. Yeah. And isn't, isn't, isn't that the way that, that businesses often start? There's and, just some, some and, key pieces of luck like that. that yeah, but there, there's plenty of good people out there that will help you along the way. Like I've mentored um, people that have come in and asked me, oh, I'm opening a coffee shop and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And I'm just going, don't do it. And, and I'll sit down with them and if they have a good business plan in their head and they know the money is right and, and they have an idea what they're talking about, I'll go, yeah, go on, do it. It's worth the risk. But other people come in and just go, I want to open a coffee shop and it's just me and I'm going to have 100 seats and a coffee machine. I'm going, how are you going to make money? How are you going to pay the rent? And you have to be realistic at the back of it on where the money's going to come from to pay the bills. Do you realise rent, rates, overheads, staff? Revenue, that kind of stuff. I think there's a there's a there's a lot of people have this fantasy that they want to be their own boss, um, but I think it, I I think it's there there is truth to it because there's certain types of people that can't work for other people. I can't anymore. I'm ruined. I can't anymore. <laughs> I'm done. I'm not. I'm completely oh, no, unemployable. I have seen people go back and and sort of going. I've had enough. I can't do it. The stress is too much. Yeah. And they've gone back into production work or factory work or working for someone else. 
and they're happy as Larry with their 9 to 5 Monday to Friday, four weeks holidays a year and not a worry in the world. I couldn't do that. I couldn't, I couldn't work Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. I need, you can't. <laughs> I need to be in front of three or 400 people screaming over a bar on a, a Saturday night um, talking to tourists about, you know, this is a 1200 quid whiskey, you should buy it. Um, you know, half messing with them, but half serious at yeah. the back of it and, and being passionate about the product we have and its origin. I, I think back in, in Celtic Tiger days, we were selling drink like there was no tomorrow and food like there was no, people were throwing money at us and it was great. And we were making a fortune. Recession hit and we're going, what's after happening? Now we're, we're sort of out of recession now, allegedly. And people have a little bit more disposable income. But compared with the Celtic Tiger days, people now want informed decisions about what they're buying. If they come into a bar and they want a craft beer, they want to know who makes it, where it's from, what it tastes like. I want a taste of it before I'll buy it. Um, and the same with whiskey. They want you, to know you, care about behind it. you care about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, it sells the product. But second of all, there, there's human stories behind every single product we sell. Gone are the days of, I'll be shot for this, but Budweiser and Carlsberg, you know, and sort of there you go. But they're huge corporations. Now people want to deal with people who have a personal touch and they want to know that that growing up the road made this beer, Danny down the road made that beer. You know, there's a micro distillery, you know, I suppose the, the whole shop local campaign was that this is not paying for a third holiday home. This is paying for Johnny to have soccer lessons and, and, and Jenny to have dance lessons, you know? Yeah, it's... Um, so that there's that aspect to it where you have to have this honesty and you have to know your Ooh. stuff. Um, I'm also interested, it, it, as a personal interest, in the role of, of luck in business. So you're unemployable. You have to you have to start a business. The next question is, can you can you make business successful? The facts say that you can. But do you think that luck played a role? So you were lucky that the owner of Reddy's Bar was a guy who, was, who saw something in you, yeah. was prepared to help you. I think you were lucky again in the recession because you you, you bought, I think, Oscars at that time. Yeah. And that was a huge risk. Yeah. Uh, was it a considered risk or was there luck? It was... Uh... I, I think the, the thing I had was Revolution was struggling. City centre was struggling. Like 20% of the buildings in Waterford City Centre were empty. Like there was, you know, companies going bust. All the publicans I knew were going bust around me and everyone was telling me I was next. And I work hard at business and, and I'm going, I'm not going to be next. And if I have to work harder, I'll work harder. Um, but we just didn't have footfall. So we're finding it tough and... Uh, banks just changed their attitude from handing me a check for a million quid anytime I wanted to do a renovation or an extension or whatever and it was basically writing checks for me and all of a sudden the bank turned around and gone oh uh, I don't think your your uh, loan to uh, value ratio is, is, is okay and I think we'll have to pull in our loan I'm going I've never missed a loan payment I didn't go interest only I, I've always paid you why this attitude and uh, halfway through sort of negotiating myself out of this way and blagging myself out of it that we can survive this recession and there's no need to take the pub off me, uh, Oscars came to market. And it was in Nama 
and the bank had to pay security staff to mind it in case it was broken into. And I said, I'll mind it. And when it comes for sale, I'll buy it at this price. And fair juice to suppliers who I dealt with for the previous 10 years, uh, a kitchen supplier, a carpenter, a builder, they all rallied around me. And I said, lads, I won't be able to pay you straight away, but I guarantee I'll pay you. And my word is my bond. And they helped me. And I think we spent something like 300,000, 400,000 put into that bar. But from the day it opened, it was a success because I knew in the middle of 1,200 houses, people need to eat. No matter what the fundamentals, is, fundamentals people need to eat and they need to get out for a drink. They won't be buying champagne, but they'll come in for a pint. And, and there's a there's a there's an interesting thing about that because if you look at uh, to compare to compare what you did to Google or Facebook, right. they were also started in recessions. Yeah, and there's this thing where businesses started in recessions they are often value. really successful. They learn value. Yeah, and they value customers. It's in the blood and, and what customers think. And I think from a HR point of view, I've always had the opinion is never hire someone for what they know. Hire them for personality, especially in the hospitality business. Like if someone can smile at a customer and apologize or welcome them, they'll get away with anything. And I've always said this, that, you know, if a customer has a complaint about food, apologize, smile, I'll fix it for you. And they'll respect you for it at the end of the day that you respected them. It's it's important to have those insights into different types of businesses. Yes. But you're now transferring that into uh, a wide range of new businesses because you're essentially uh, the patron of all these businesses that are now in your oh co-working space that you've set up, <laughs> um, which is the latest and, and greatest venture that that, that uh, you've put together. Yeah. Um, let's talk about BoxRx a little bit. And okay. in terms of, uh, just with full disclosure, I work in BoxRx. Um, I've worked here for a year. It's it's been fantastic to have this space to do a new startup in. Um, met lots of interesting people, and you know we we all kind of give each other business. Um, so it's it's it, it, it's fair to say it has had a significant impact on the growth of my new business. Um, but why why Boxworks? Why, um, why does it exist? When I was looking for uses for the building, um, co working just came kept coming to mind. And Emer worked for another co-working space and she was giving me an insight. Come down and have a look at it. Another man of mine worked in Dogpatch in Dublin. He said, come up and have a look. And when we're, I suppose, doing our homework on it, the guys in Dogpatch, when it's all desks, I'd love an office. Or if you have to take a, a phone call, it's not private. So we built a couple of phone boxes. We built some offices. Tell, tell us about the TARDIS. You have to tell <laughs> us about the TARDIS. Uh, when, when we decided we, I wanted a phone box and I was going, should we buy and, a phone And these box? are the, the soundproof, Sound, soundproof, uh, soundproof soundproof boots we have within BoxWorks. Um, they had to be cool. They had to be trendy. Like it was Google versus, you know, uh, Waterford's co-working space versus desks. And uh, for someone to take a phone call, we went, so why don't we build uh, an Irish phone box? We went to try and buy one, couldn't buy one for love of their money. So a talented young carpenter called Rob turned around and said, oh, I'll make it for you. So he spent about a week building an authentic uh, replica of an Irish phone box. It's fairly soundproof, that you can jump into. And when he built it, I went, that's really cool. You know what I want? I want a TARDIS. I was a Doctor Who fan. So he built us a TARDIS, the police Brilliant. box. And so that's at one end and the Irish phone box is at the other end of the room. Um, the, uh, the, the the space itself, uh, and I've worked in a number of different co-working mm. spaces and, and 
because I travel, I visit them in different cities. Um, you've really gone in for the sort of hipster, trendy stuff. And that's an echo of all the way back to Reddy's, really, isn't it? You, you have a, kind of an appreciation for art and, and design and architecture. Yes. Uh, Imre dragged me into running a Waterford Fringe Festival, a, a festival that ran for about 10 years. So I got a keen interest in art, meeting artists and what made them tick. Um then I had looked at Google, what makes that tick? Like, what's what's cool and trendy about Google's offices? Why do people want to work there? And we, we sort of mashed it all together. And Imra was adamant about having an industrial type space. And I'm going, yeah, but we need it clinical to do business in. And then we need a cool beating area and a nice um, good coffee, I suppose. You know, put a coffee machine in, you know, and... and you know, keep people happy that, that they're, you know, if they want to work at eight o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock at night, they can go and make a coffee and then sit down back to work. And the key to it, I think, is being in a city centre. Yes. Because if you're if you're sitting in an office and you're having a bad day and stuff is going wrong, you can walk into the middle of the city centre, meet friends for lunch or coffee, meet clients or just go for a walk and come back with your your head clear which i have which i have done especially if you don't make if you, know, <laughs> if you don't I, make a sale or not I, I, i've been coming home from the bar at you know 12 one o'clock in the morning and richard is still in his office and i'm going <laughs> what do you do and he goes i just feel like working late. like you i'm not gone down the alcoholic route i've gone down the workaholic route yes. speaking of of hip and trendy um i, I hear you're putting gin and tonic in a can yes this is, <laughs> more about this. This is the next thing um I think once I got into the, the craft beer thing, Brewdog became my, my go-to people, two 23-year-olds who went to change the world with the flavour of beer. And they said, all beers are just boring and we want to do something crazy. And they brought out the craziest of beers from Elvis Juice to Jackhammer to Punk IPA to Tactical Nuclear Penguin. And a... Uh, Somewhere along the route, they became highly successful, very charismatic characters going, we want to be different. And then they produced their own gin at the start of the gin craze. And it was with uh, Star Anise and Juniper and Coriander and all this kind Sounds of stuff. Lovely. And it was a premium bottle. And then rather than putting a label on it, they put a piece of paper with a story on it and an elastic band to hold it on. And I was going, this is cool. These guys are cutting <laughs> edge. But the flavor was lovely. Then a couple of months later, they came out with their own tonic and they used the same ingredients for making the tonic as they did for making the gin. So they worked really well together. And then a month later, they brought out, I suppose, a Coke can size gin and tonic. And to, to talk to a customer about what would you recommend as a gin? And I'd always tell them, don't give out to me, but this is the best gin and tonic we have. And they're looking at you going, what do you mean don't give out to me? And I'll put up a glass full of ice and, and, and a couple of fruit wedges. And next thing I'll take a can out of the fridge and go, oh God, a, a can of gin and tonic. And I'm going, taste it if you like it. If you don't, I'll give you your money back. And I've never had to give my money back to anybody. The next time I'm in revolution, i have to get one of those. <laughs> That's yours. Uh, you're nearly off the hook. Uh, flash but we have a quick fire question round go on <laughs> so first thing that comes into your head um, what's the most expensive thing you've ever bought a bottle of 30 year old Middleton Pearl for 12 and a half thousand euro for a bottle of whiskey go on you good thing it's, That's right, it's for sale in the bar at 1200 a million <laughs> I'll make my money back in, in about 40 years time ever at the business bed yeah. I tell you yeah yeah there you go um 
Now, how would you say the people who work for you uh, describe me? God. Um, if I'm hungover, I'm hyper and happy. And they hate that. Um, I think I'm good to work for, but I can be quite controlling and I have to sort of step back now and again. But I'm very much customer focused. And if all my staff are customer focused, we're all happy and moving forward together. That culture kind of yes. it kind of yeah. bleeds down for me. Um, this one is a this one is a, a Silicon Valley cliche. Go on. Uh, what do you believe that's true that most people don't? What do I believe that's true that most people don't? I suppose that we can do anything, and I think Waterford as city has seen some of the worst of times. And I believe that the future is always bright and that Waterford is going to be one of the iconic cities of the future with an Orkeys project and everything is going to happen in the next couple of years. Fantastic answer. I have to I have to um, I have to agree completely. Um, you don't drive. Why is that? I never learned. I've always my, my mom and dad never drive drove. Um, I live in the city centre. I'm four or five minutes from work. Oscars is the furthest place I go, which is 10 minutes by cab in the mornings. Um, And I believe our public transport system is quite good and that it is cheaper not to have a car, even though that's not the real reason. I just don't bother to drive. Um, But like, look the cost of a car. And look what it costs you. And look what it costs me to go to Dublin, uh, to go wherever I want to go and to get cabs wherever I want to go. It's cheaper than you'll spend on car in a week then I'll spend on taxi in a week. You're living by example, living the the, the small city lifestyle. You yeah. don't need a car. Yeah. But like Waterford is, it's like a little village. Um, and a lot of people know a lot of people and it's easy to do business in, but yet it's big enough to, to have a successful business in. And I think, you know, Dublin has had its day. It's too big. It's too crowded. It's too expensive. And when we were launching Boxworks, I had this, Two guys rang me, uh, two guys from one company rang me and about 20 minute question and answer thing on the phone on, you know, where is Boxworks? What's it about? What will it be like? And I go, yeah, you can have an office and it's 250 for a desk a month or 350 for a, an office. And they were going, um, well, why is it so cheap? What's wrong with it? And this is nothing wrong with it. I'll send you on photographs of it. And then go, where will we live? And I went on to Daft and Picked out a place in Railway Square, Palace and Maritana Gate. Nice, modern, trendy apartments. Sent them on the link. They rang me back 10 minutes later. Uh, that's probably in a rough area. We want somewhere nice to live. And I said, that's nice. But it's 650 a, a, a month. And I'm going, yeah. He says, two grand for an apartment in Dublin. I said, this is Waterford. Next question was, uh, how far is it from Boxworks? I said, about five to 10 minutes. And he goes, uh, is that bus or car or... No, I said, it's walking. You don't need a car in Waterford. And they were just shocked. I don't think people appreciate the, the, uh, how fantastic it is to live in a small city. No, absolutely not. I have well, one I have one last quick fire question. Go on. I have to ask this one. Who was the first person that called you Flash? Uh, in school at the age of three or four. Um, my surname is Gordon, so I just became known as Flash. So you've been Flash forever. Forever. Even my mum will ring the pub now, and if she asks for Jim and a new staff member answers the phone, uh, uh, they'll go, who is Flash there? 
And you had uh, you had you had Flash in your email address. Flash at IOL. Yeah, that's I, brilient. I've that I got that. in the eighties, and I'm never leaving uh, go. <laughs> do not ever let it go. And the first bar was called Flashes. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we're going to. Um, uh, bring things to a conclusion. Thank you very much for joining me, Flash. Anytime. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of Fireside with Voxkick. You can find notes and links from this podcast at boxgig.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, one you can also learn. Visit boxgig.com slash newsletter to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward.